This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. To the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. Carlos Cagina is the technical producer and Ryan White is the live stream producer. Check out my YouTube and Rumble channel, Strange Planet. We are about three months shy of the 75th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident, but we're going to discuss it a few months early because the 75th anniversary edition of Witness to Roswell, unmasking the government's biggest cover-up has just been released. The co-authors, the world's foremost Roswell investigators, Thomas J. Carey and Donald R. Smith, Schmidt, are, are with us for the next two hours. And in the annals of American UFO history, few incidents have inspired, inspired as uh, much fascination and speculation as the one in Roswell, New Mexico. In July of 1947, that summer... During the dawn or at the dawn of the Cold War, when the U.S. Army Air Forces sent out a shocker of a press release announcing they'd recovered a flying disc from a ranch near Roswell. Then a few days later, the story changed and it was reported the debris recovered was, in fact, a weather balloon. But behind all the UFO mania, there lies an uneasy truth. And the events that transpired that summer are anything but clear-cut with admitted cover-ups and conflicting explanations. Witness to Roswell uh, remains a classic in the field of ufology. It's filled with hard-hitting eyewitness testimony of one of the most important events of all time, the actual recovery of a UFO outside of Roswell. For more than 70, well, now nearly 75 years, government authorities have led us to believe that the wreckage was merely a very conventional weather balloon. But the witnesses who were there continue to tell a different story. Witness to Roswell, the 75th anniversary edition, once again provides a can't-put-down written account of what really transpired in Roswell seven and a half decades ago. It pries loose the truth the government doesn't want us to know, including the revelations of Walter Hout. And uh, the, the 75th edition 
75th anniversary edition includes a growing litany of deathbed confessions describing the little people recovered at the crash site. The most comprehensive timeline of events ever published on this seminal event. The identity of the Boeing engineer called in to examine the exotic wreckage from the crash. What really took place at the Roswell Base Hospital and what nurse, what the nurse actually uh, ordered. The children's caskets, the story of the soldier who wore gloves at the dinner table after guarding the bodies. Clearly, the implications of this information are foreboding. One need only look at the, the fact that officials now have four explanations for this historic event, but to which one do all the witnesses testify on their deathbeds. Thomas J. Carey has a BS, uh, Bachelor of Science degree in Business Administration from Temple University, a master's degree in anthropology from California State. And uh, he also received a fellowship to pursue a PhD in anthropology at the University of Toronto. Tom became interested in UFOs while in high school and rekindled that interest in 1986 when he became the MUFON State Section Director for Southeastern Pennsylvania. And since 1991, Tom's research has focused solely on the so-called Roswell incident that occurred near the town of Roswell, New Mexico in July 47. Tom also became a special investigator for CUFOs, the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies in 1992 and served on its board of directors from 97 through 2001. He's appeared as a guest on a number of radio and television shows concerning the Roswell incident, as well as appearing in several film documentaries. Donald R. Schmidt, the former co-director of the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies, where he served as director of special investigations for 10 years. And prior to that, he was a special investigator for the late Dr. J. Allen Hynek for the International UFO Reporter. Don graduated cum laude from Concordia University with a degree in liberal arts. He's the author of dozens of articles about UFOs, as well as the co-author of a number of best-selling books, UFO Crash at Roswell, The Truth About the UFO Crash at Roswell, and... Uh, Great to have Tom and Don back on the program. Welcome back. How are you both? Nice to be with you again, Richard. Same here, Richard. Great to be back. 75th anniversary. What's uh, Now, the original came out, I think, in 2009, so 13 years ago. So what is new in Witness to Roswell, the 75th anniversary edition? Wow. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, Actually, the uh, the first edition came out in 2007, Richard. Ah. Uh, it uh, did so well, it was the uh, top-selling not only book about Roswell, but the top-selling uh, UFO book in the world for two years. And the second edition followed in 2009, which also became the top-selling UFO book uh, in 2009. So uh, that's what precedes the current book. Uh, we, we This will actually be our 11th book, if I have the count right. This will be our 11th book about the Roswell incident. And uh, it uh, is a uh, third edition, updated, uh, revised for the 75th anniversary. And uh, certainly, the the last big event for Roswell, Richard, was the 50th anniversary back in 1997. And uh, so this is 25 years after that. We don't think we're going to make it to the uh, 100th anniversary. 
So <laughs> speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, we had it. We, we uh, put together a uh, new edition, updated and revised uh, with new conclusions. And uh, I believe the re- you know we want to save something for the readers. So, but uh, they will certainly uh, find it uh, well worth their time. So seventy-five years, the eyewitnesses. I would imagine all gone. Most of many of the children, if not most of the children of the witnesses, have passed. I'm guessing. Starting so to, has, yes, yes. has the final chapter on on Roswell been written? Well, as you mentioned, just with the families, we find ourselves still coming across information from family members, from relatives. They pass it on, and the wonderful thing about even second-hand testimony that if it corroborates the first-hand that we've collected over these past um, over 30 years, it becomes uh, very substantial. And so uh, the investigation remains fluid in that regard because we still intend on tracking down families, especially those of many of the reluctant witnesses we had encountered who refused to uh, you know, give us any information right up to their very deathbeds. And the hope now is that they did finally pass something on to a wife, uh, a son or daughter, that can then be related to us. So, uh, it's, uh, as Tom knows, it's always exciting when we get a piece of new information. And as often as we've had phones slammed down on us and doors slammed in our faces through the years, it's something that most of our colleagues in the field have never dealt with. Um, to them, an investigation is something over the phone. Maybe you go out into the field and uh, you kick the ground around a little bit. You look up into the sky with a pair of binoculars, mm-hmm. and maybe you have some witnesses present to relive the experience. That's the extent of it. But Roswell, given that it is a granddaddy of them all, and because it encompasses every possible aspect of a UFO case, or any event for that matter, where you have wreckage, you have bodies, you have a survivor, you have civilian witnesses, you have military from different facilities, and then you have the testing and the analysis, and then everything that has transpired up to today, which has necessitated the fact, as you mentioned at the beginning, Richard, that we are now up to four official explanations. Uh, Tom and I often joke, you know, husbands, try that with your wives. (laughs) <laughs> but, you know, the government, we, we let them get away with that. And it still comes back to who has all the eyewitnesses. Well, we do. The government has zero. No one. And that's why we've often been told we could go in any court of law and win this hands down. And that confidence and that level of accomplishment has only grown through the years. If you had to uh, take this case to court... And all of the witnesses, the Mac Brazels, the Sheriff Wilcox, the Jesse Marcells, the Colonel Blanchards, the Brigadier General Roger Ramey, and Brigadier General Thomas Dubose, who would you put on the stand as your star witness? Well, uh, Richard, we, there are several star witnesses. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of uh, numer- numerical superiority. I would say the first witness we would put on, at least this was my humble opinion, would be uh, 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 Lieutenant Colonel Edwin Easley, 
this uh, he was interviewed early on around 1990-1991 when uh, our investigation had uh, uh, we were still presented with a possible crash on the plains of San Augustine which is 150 miles west of uh, Roswell uh, as, the, as the possible location of the crash. We weren't sure. But uh, uh, Kevin Randall interviewed uh, easily, and uh, to every question that Kevin asked him, he, he said, I can't answer that. I'm sworn to secrecy. Okay, another question. Nope, sworn to secrecy. So I know myself, you know, if I get that answer often enough, I say, well, have a nice day, uh, uh, Colonel. Uh, thank you. But uh, I guess Kevin, like, uh, he was getting near the end, and he had answered every question with that, I can't speak to you because I'm sworn to secrecy. Kevin said, well, can you answer us this? Are we going in the right direction? And there's a pause, and Easley says, well, what, what, what direction is that? And uh, Kevin uh, said something to the effect, well, we, we think it's a UFO, a captured flying a saucer, crashed flying saucer. And so there's another pause, and Easley says, well, let me put it to you this way. You're not going in the wrong direction. Well, that was a, that was a sea change. For, for us, I, I had not yet joined the, the investigation yet, so this occurred uh, uh, maybe a year before I joined. But that was a sea change because it focused our investigation uh, that it was really a crash of a flying saucer, or rather than a weather balloon or anything else. And uh, that's who I would put on first. Uh, Don maybe uh, would agree, or he has another. Uh, someone else, like Walter Howard, I, I don't know what uh, what he would say. Should I? Should I? <laughs> yes, please, uh, please I, I would, do. I would concur as to the importance of Easley, who was uh, head of the, the 1395th EMP unit. So he was in charge of all security at the, the uh, recovery sites and then at the base itself. So in other words, everything that went down, he would have been privy to. He would have been... Uh, you know, giving out orders as far as all the enlisted men, everyone who was involved. But uh, in my case, it would be the civilian, the principal civilian, that being the ranch foreman, W.W. Mac Brazel, because not only the debris field, but also a number of the bodies at a uh, another site, and then specifically the way he was then abducted, kidnapped by the military, the way he was kept for five days, deprived of water, food, uh, kept up all hours of the night. And then when he later, when he would talk about the indignity, how embarrassed, and the fact that he was subjected to a full body cavity search, that type of thing. Can you imagine describing that on a, on a, in a courtroom, on a stand, that you were subjected to a full body cavity search looking for pieces of a weather balloon? I, I would like to add another one, a third one, if I could. Another uh, another sea change type of uh, witness, uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, later General uh, Thomas Jefferson Dubose. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, now the official 
Air Force explanation for years at that time was uh, that it was a weather balloon. They first said it was a flying saucer, which they were correct about that. But then uh, within hours, they changed it to a uh, crashed weather balloon. Well, in 1990, 91, uh, I think Don interviewed him. It's I think Stanton Friedman interviewed him. And Don the two of us did, correct, on two different occasions, right? Yes. Don interviewed him, and the main uh, point of uh, DuBose's uh, testimony. Now, DuBose was the uh, second-in-command. He was the adjutant uh, commander, deputy commander at Fort Worth, Texas, Fort Worth Army Airfield, the uh, headquarters of the 8th Army, which the 509th Bomb Group in Roswell reported to. And uh, during the press conference, this is a, the weather balloon press conference, uh, DuBose is present, and Ramey puts out the weather balloon story. Well, that holds for years uh, and in 1990 Don interviews uh, DuBose and DuBose says well that weather balloon story that was a construct we put together that story it wasn't true but uh, we were told to get the uh, make up a story to get the press off General Ramey's back so we put out this weather balloon story it's not what happened it's happened but that's that's what that story was it was just to get the press off general ramey's back it wasn't true so i would i would say that's a, another important witness certainly uh, uh uh jesse marcel also the uh first military person at uh that uh was at the crash site so and and uh, perhaps don could talk about uh, maybe maybe he, i'm sure he would include marcel I would, and and the fact that we have uh, eyewitness testimony, we have good reason to believe that Marcel also was aware of the bodies recovered. And so um, we ourselves would love to have had the opportunity to, to, to question Marcel. And I think uh, the one thing that uh, we, we still consider investigative malpractice is the earlier investigators, they never thought about taking the very head of intel of the 509th at Roswell, you know, the, the highest-ranking officer to first arrive at the scene of the crash. And they, the investigators never bothered to take him out there to have him actually relive the experience, describe what he saw where and the extent of the debris and uh, his impression being back there after all those years. And uh, we would have relished such, uh, such an opportunity. And uh, we just came into, uh, Marcel had died in 86, so we missed him by three to four years. When Jesse Marcel went back to the base and they were putting this report together, uh, who, and, you know, he was saying, this is, this is not of this world and so forth. Who overruled him in the writing of that report and told him, you know, you're not happy with it, take it up with Washington? Well, it, it, Marcel, that wasn't Marcel. Uh, Cabot wrote the report. Uh, this was the uh, the CIC uh, Counterintelligence Corps uh, Captain Sheridan Cabot was not under the command of the uh, the 509th Group. He was, his command was in Washington, the, the, the Counterintelligence Corps. So uh, he went out to the crash site with Marcel, and uh, 
you know, he saw everything that Marcel had seen, namely wreckage from a crashed UFO. And uh, so they come back to the base. Uh, uh, Cabot came back first with uh, with a load of wreckage, and then Marcel came a little later. And uh, what happened was that they they sent Marcel off to Fort Worth because they had changed the story. They were going to change the story, rather. So they send Marcel to Fort Worth with a plane load of wreckage, and uh, Cabot remains in uh, Roswell. So uh, when Marcel gets back, the story had changed, but he demands from his compatriot who was at the crash site with him, what did you, I want to see your report to the CIC command in Washington. Uh, his next uh, uh, higher boss actually was in Albuquerque, a fellow named Doyle Reese. I want to see that report. And uh, Cabot says, you can't, re nope, you can't see it. And, and Marcel was a major and Cabot was a captain. He says, I outrank you. you give it to me. And he says, no, I don't answer to you, uh, Jesse. Uh, I answer to the people in Washington. Take it up with them. So he never did get to see that report. When he was posing, uh, when Jesse Marcel Sr. was f forced to pose with the picture, pictures of the, uh, what was, you know, the, the remnants of a weather balloon in Fort Worth, and you can see on his face this look of Oh, yeah. Oh, like, yeah. you know, what, you know, what, what did they yeah. just do to me? What, what kind of a fast one are they trying to pull here? Um, and in the picture, we also have uh, Roger Ramey. And then later, I think Ramey is posing with the same debris with Lieutenant Colonel, I'm sorry, Brigadier General uh, Thomas DuBose, if I'm not mistaken. Well, Colonel at that time, Colonel DuBose. Oh, Colonel, right. Colonel DuBose. Right. Uh, and, and, uh, this brings me to the, the famous, uh, Ramey memo because there's mm -hmm. this just broke a few years ago when Ramey was holding something in his in his hand and a photographer first well you walk us through the story who first noticed that memo who who was able to kind of enlarge it and and what did it what did it say well I'm gonna I'm gonna set it up I'm gonna set up a press conference quickly and then I'm gonna toss it to Tom because Tom spent a lot of early years working on that memo so let me just start by uh, coming back to the original press release and the fact that the only person that is mentioned in that release was Major Marcel. Only name that's in the press release. And he's conveniently, initially, on his way to Wright Field. He left at 3 o'clock that afternoon of Tuesday, July 8th. Within just a few hours after that press release hit the wire services. Now, the base commander, Colonel Blanchard, he's announced he's going on leave. Well, anyone who's been in the military, including Tom, you realize you don't go on leave after a holiday weekend because then you could dock for both. You would tie the two together. So it made absolutely no sense on a 4th of July weekend that on a Tuesday, July 8th, you would then finally go on leave. Well, in reality, as uh, his operations officer, Colonel uh, uh, Joseph Briley, told us, that the leave was a blind, as he called it, that he actually had set up a base of operation at the crash site, have open radio communication back to Washington and Fort Worth, 
And so that's where he was. And he was uncovered, earlier, so to speak. Uh, sorry, Don, I got to jump in here because we have to take a time out. Apologies okay. for the interruption. We'll come back and pick it up on the other side. Donald Schmidt and Thomas Carey are with us as we commemorate the 75th anniversary of Roswell and the 75th anniversary edition of Witness to Roswell uh, just released this month. Back with more of our conversation right after these. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. All right. Welcome back. Don Schmidt is uh, with us and Thomas Carey as well as we discuss the 75th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident and the 75th anniversary edition of Witness to Roswell just out uh, this month. Uh, So, uh, Don, we're talking about the... um, the Roger Ramey uh, memo he was setting up we're the, setting uh, the press up, conference and how Colonel Howard the circumstances uh, were left. and how it, it, it came uh, to uh, actually be available. And left and, on leave on that Tuesday, uh, just after a long weekend, which was kind of odd. But in fact, he, he, he wasn't on leave. He went out to the crash site and was doing a little investigating of his own. Correct. Well, I set up a base of operation, as they would call it. Correct. Do we have and Don? Rancher who initially reported... Don? Yes. The oh, rancher are you there, Tom? Yes. Yes. I am are you there, uh, Don yeah. Schmidt? Yes. So the rancher who initially reported... Oh, oh, sorry about that. There we are. Sorry about that. Having no, some no technical problem. problems here. Okay, uh, go ahead, so Don. Rancher, if you could um, pick it up on the with the press conference. The, the, the rancher the rancher reported the crash. Ash. He he is abducted uh, uh, by the military. By the military. So, so he's in communication. He's in communication. And and Jesse Marcel. He is of the impression he's going to Fort Worth to take some of the actual debris there to be tested and analyzed. Well, mid-flight. They're told they're, they're making a preliminary stop at Fort Worth. That General Ramey wanted to see the wreckage. So Marcel would describe how he would take some of the actual wreckage to Ramey's office, place it on his desk. They'd go to a map room. And when they would return, the actual material is now gone. It's missing. And in its place is that weather balloon that neoprene rubber balloon with a radar reflector kite and hexagonal Rowan target device, which is foil, wooden sticks, string, and tape. And in the hallway are a whole cluster of reporters who have been tipped off that there's going to be a press conference and they're going to actually display the flying saucer, pieces of the flying saucer from Roswell. Well, wouldn't you know it that Ramey, then only allows one single reporter by the name of James B. Johnson of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram to take pictures. The rest are kept in the hallway, so much for this being an open press conference. And as you were describing, Richard, how then Marcel is ordered by Ramey to crouch down and pose with the substituted balloon, holding up sheets of the uh, radar kite. He's then told not to say a word to any of the reporters in the hallway, and they keep him overnight. He's not allowed to even fly back to Roswell till the next evening. Well, in the subsequent pictures, as you mentioned, there are two shots of Ramey alone, and then two additional of Ramey and DeBose. And in all those four shots, he's holding 
what uh, is a piece of paper, which we identified back in 1990 already, what appeared to be a press release, a telex. And at that time, when we learned that the original negative still existed, we managed to get copies, and we saw that we were just on the cusp, that we were, just, we were that close to hopefully being able to read what we suspected was nothing more than a, a press release about the weather balloon. And Dr. Richard Haynes did some computer enhancement, and he came up with one word, balloon, which would further you know, solidify our position at that time in 1990, that this was a press release about the weather balloon. Well, we were wrong. And so I'll let Tom take it from there, because uh, the rest is, uh, is now history. Yes, uh, back when Richard Haynes uh, did his analysis, the, uh, I don't know if it was just the magnifying glass or uh, the... Computer enhancement, Tom. It was computer enhancement. That's all it was at that time. Okay, well, it wasn't, wasn't as sophisticated as later uh, photographic software. Uh, so he could only uh, identify one word, which uh, was balloon, as Don said. But later on, and beginning, I guess, in the, somewhere in the mid-1990s, uh, uh, a fellow by the name of uh, Dr. David Rudiak, an optometrist, uh, he was an expert with uh, computer software. And I myself had the computer. I still have a computer software. But uh, just to speak of my my analysis first, uh, Stanton Friedman had also made a copy of these photographs. I think there was a total of six photographs taken. And if you if you uh, go by the folds in the telex that uh, Ramey is holding. You can tell which photos came before another, you know, in sequence. Well, the photo we're talking about uh, was the last one with the Ramey in it. And in it, you can see he's got the, he was during, between the takes, between the photographic takes, you can see that he was trying to quickly read this telex because it had more folds in it as the, as the uh, uh, photo shoot progressed. So the one uh, we're talking about, it, there, it shows about one-third of the page of the telex, beginning at the top. And uh, Stan Friedman had also made a copy of it, and uh, I actually bought a, a CD disc from Stan for, t for $25. So I took a look at it, and so help me, this is the honest-to-God truth, when I brought it up on my computer... Within 10 seconds, I was able to read the victims of the wreck you forwarded to the blank at Fort Worth, Texas. The victims of the wreck that you forwarded to Fort Worth, Texas. And uh, I, within 10 seconds, I was able to read that. I also was able to read the words uh, meaning of story, which was, was talking about the press release. Uh, Weather and also weather balloons would make, uh, and as it turned out, would make the, their story better if they demonstrated. And the last uh, was uh, something about uh, 
Ray Win Weather uh, Ray Win Cruise in uh, uh, Roswell. So I was able to get that much out of it, but uh, David Rudiak got a lot more than I did because you know he's an optometrist, and <laughs> but uh, basically that was uh, he he developed the the sentence that there was a second site and that there were aviators in the disc and uh, they mentioned Roswell things that I couldn't make out David was able to uh, make out and what it did is it proved the uh, you know what what sort of victim does a balloon coming to gr the ground uh, what sort of victim can that have it lands on your head and you you laugh about it so uh, so it was a smoking gun. I, I believe we still call it the smoking gun of Roswell. The um, the two Air Force reports, uh, facts versus fiction, in the New Mexico desert, and then case closed. Um, did they did they interview um, then Brigadier General Thomas Dubose? Did they mention the? Um, the uh, the Ramey memo did any of that come up in either of those reports? Well, the Debose had already passed in '91, so uh. the Mogul report came out in September of 1994. And the main reason, as even Newsweek magazine put it, when we were fortunate enough to become involved with the late Congressman Stephen Schiff of New Mexico, and uh, you know Schiff for you know, trying to get answers through the White House and through the different branches of the military and, uh, and the Pentagon being denied even by the Secretary of Defense, Les Aspen, at that time on three separate occasions that um, he had a promise from the Air Force, specifically the Air Force, should they find anything, he would be the first. Well, <laughs> keeping as far as... You know, as far as maintaining their policy of deception and cover-up, he was the last because they went public. They had a press conference in September of '94 where Colonel Richard Weaver announced that uh, the original balloon explanation was a lie, and they presented their new theory about this Russian spy balloon called Mogul. Well, the fact that they were they were coming out with a third explanation at that time. And we were surprised that the only witness that they went out of their way to speak with was Captain Sheridan Cabot, then a retired lieutenant colonel. And what I don't think they were privy to was the fact that we also were in contact with uh, Colonel Cabot. And in fact, we were there with the Cabots, both the uh, Sheridan and his wife Mary in May of 1994 at their home in Squim, Washington. And as we were leaving after again spending another afternoon with Cabot denying he was involved, that there was anything recovered, that there was nothing out of the ordinary. And all at once his wife says, Tell the boys about the Colonel from the Pentagon who was just here to interview you. And he gives her a look, you know, that could cut through steel. And then he whirls and he looks at us and goes, Yeah, and I told him exactly as I'm telling you. 
I wasn't involved. Well, aren't we surprised that when we see the report come out in September that there's a full, full-blown, you know, sworn affidavit, Cabot, you know, describing the full recovery, and that he immediately recognized it as being this mogul balloon, and albeit he never bothered to tell the base commander at Roswell or even Major Marcel, who was with him at the time. But uh, he referred to his interviewing, uh, being interviewed by us. And um, it just was the fact that they specifically selected as a star witness the one person that they knew would stand by their third explanation, and that being this mogul balloon nonsense. Which is. All right, Don, I've got to jump in uh, uh, again. Sorry for the interruption. We'll come back. Thomas Carey and Donald Schmidt stay with us as we continue to delve into the incident at Roswell, the 75th anniversary. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Witness to Roswell, the 75th anniversary edition, just out this month, in anticipation of the actual 75th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident, July of uh, this year will mark, again, 75 years. And Thomas Carey and Donald Schmidt uh, stay with us. Um, I was talking about the um, the two Air, U.S. Air Force whitewashes, uh, fact versus fiction, and case closed. Um has there ever been any discussion about a, I don't know, a third, getting them to write a third one, but maybe a little more open, open-minded, like, you know, so they could go back and consider some of the evidence that the two of you, for example, have uncovered with eyewitness testimony and, and deathbed confessions and so forth? You, you mean by the Air Force? Or even Congress. Well, I believe, uh, I'm trying to think, there was a, a congressional one-day hearing in 1968 after the uh, Ann Arbor-Dexter, Michigan sightings. Uh, there was a one-day conference, and it led to nothing. And uh, certainly, Roswell has become known around the world. Uh, certainly, the the... 1997 50th anniversary and uh, uh, did a lot to uh, publicize the case and I believe the most important book up until then was the uh, not only the 1980 Roswell incident book but uh, Randall and Schmidt's uh, 1991 UFO case uh, UFO crash at Roswell but uh, no the, the, the Air Force here, here's the thing uh, Richard you know because of those 2017, uh, Luis Elizondo uh, produced videos uh, from the Navy, where they had the gun camera video of, uh, you know, chasing UFOs. Uh, one in, uh, off the West Coast in 2004, this so-called Nimitz uh, event, and one in 2014 and 15, the USS uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, that has 
lended an air of credibility to the whole subject of UFOs. And uh, a new task force uh, was created in uh, 2007, the ATIP, uh, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Project, for five years. And uh, its successor, uh, the uh, U.S., uh, the UAP, that's the government's new term for UFOs. They'll never say UFO, they'll call it UAPs, uh, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. Uh, those, uh, they've created a new U.S. task force. But the thing is, and I think Don will agree with me on this, that they will never revisit Roswell. I mean, they will concentrate on more recent sightings, etc., etc., because they can't go back to Roswell because they will have to admit that they have been lying to us for 75 years about the phenomenon of UFOs. And they will also have to answer for the civil rights violation that the government, uh, the Air Force, the Army Air Corps, perpetrated upon the civilians of Roswell and Corona, New Mexico, back in 47 to silence them. And they don't want to answer for that. And they don't want to answer that they've been lying to us for 75 years about something. Well, geez, what else have they been lying to us about? So... Uh, that's what I believe. Anyway, I don't know if Don uh, uh, agrees with me on that or not. I suspect yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And what's interesting about sense. the current UAP report that came out last June, that they only acknowledged the phenomenon back to 2004. Right, right. Sir. And I think that was done very intentionally, that the fallback could still be someone else's technology. But going back to the 40s and 50s, and you know, Russia was hardly in the position, and, and China was still a third-world country during all those decades. So they couldn't, they wouldn't acknowledge anything back to 1947 for the reason that Tom mentioned, and also for the fact that unlike this elusive phantom that is out there, and we're 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 trying to determine what it is and what its origins and what its intentions are. Well, to acknowledge Roswell, they'd have to actually, you know, uh, reveal the fact that, well, yeah, we did capture one. We, we have the remnants. We have the debris. We have, the, you know, the, the, the craft. We have the bodies, that type of thing. But I think, Richard, you'd find it even more interesting when Tom and I are asked today, where do you believe the Roswell wreckage presently is? Oh, yeah. Listen, I'm gonna, we're going to leave that as a cliffhanger. Um, uh, Don, because this was a short segment. We're going to pick that up okay. on that point exactly on the other side. Don Schmidt and Tom Carey stay with us. The uh, 75th anniversary edition of Witness to Roswell. We'll tell you how to get a copy as well. Stay with us. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. All right, Don Schmidt was just about to reveal where you believe the um, wreckage from Roswell uh, lies. And I'm going to toss it. I'm going to toss this to Tom because uh, <laughs> he loves 
<laughs> I mean, making this major revelation because uh, it's also one of the reasons that they are not forthcoming, because they would have to acknowledge the fact that they don't have it any longer. They've lost track of it. They don't know where much of it is, if not all of it, by today's standards. So go ahead, Tom. Yes. Uh, we have an associate in Florida, and he, uh, he has allowed me to use his name as uh, Anthony Bergaglia. And he's, been, uh, he's an independent investigator, indefatigable, if I'm pronouncing that right. He's indefatigable. He doesn't take no for an answer. Like if somebody slams a phone down on him, that would be enough for me to end the conversation. But he calls them right back and says, you're not going to you know, slam the phone down on me. And he, he's just indefatigable. So his quest in the Roswell investigation has been trying to find out what happened to the wreckage. Where did it go? Well, we know from witness uh, testimony over the years that it was taken to, most of it went to Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio, and now Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Most of it went there. Perhaps some of it went to Los Alamos and Alamogordo and places like that, but most of it went to uh, Wright Field. So uh, he got, uh, he was also trying to find out if any back engineering had taken place with the wreckage. He, f he found out, yes, they had contracted, uh, Wright uh, Patterson contracted with Patel Memorial Institute in Columbus, Ohio, just down the road from uh, Wright-Patterson. And they were tasked with the uh, job of trying to back-engineer the so-called memory metal. This is the metal, a lot of the wreckage was this small pieces of memory metal where it was light as a feather, looked like, you know, thin aluminum, you could, but you could wad it up in your hand and crumple it up and open your hand and it would just float there in the air and uh, uh, it would not have a crease on it. You couldn't cut it, burn it, deform it in any way permanently. So he wanted to know what they were doing with it in uh, Battelle. And uh, he discovered that in 1990, uh, excuse me, uh, 1962, the Naval Ordnance Lab, because Battelle didn't want to have their name on anything having to do with UFOs or flying saucers. So they laundered the uh, discovery or the development of something called nitinol. They had, over the years, they had uh, tried, uh, you know, to to meld uh, elements together, metals together, to, to you know, uh, re, re, uh, recapture the uh, uh, qualities of this memory metal. So in 1962, the Naval Ordnance Lab announces the development of something called nitinol. The NI stands for nickel, the TI stands for titanium, and the NOL stands for Naval Ordnance Lab. And you can look it up on your computer. You can buy it by the roll, by the coil, and it, uh, it's our best uh, uh, chance, our, our best uh, final result of trying to uh, recapture the, uh, the properties of the so-called memory metal. So, uh, and and the thing is, Anthony, he has the the progress reports because Mattel would 
would uh, report to Wright Patterson, uh, you know, every so often on their progress. And he has those progress reports. So that's one thing that they did uh, develop from the Roswell crash. Now, as far as, oh my goodness, I forgot what, what was. <laughs> oh, we were talking about where is the wreckage? Where is the, the wreckage? wreckage? Okay. Where is it now? So, Anthony, in 2017, after viewing the Luis, Luis Elizondo videos, he put together a FOIA request, Freedom of Information Act request, to the Department of uh, the uh, Defense Intelligence Agency at the Pentagon. He put together a FOIA request wanting to know where the UFO wreckage is. Where is it? Where do you have it? And what have you uh, been doing with it? And three years goes by, no answer. No answer. So uh, Anthony has the uh, ability to uh, file a lawsuit. He, uh, so he says, okay, you're not going to answer me. I am going to file a lawsuit for, uh, for you to respond. So he had an answer within two weeks, and it was from the FOIA spokesperson for the Department of Intelligence or the Defense Intelligence Agency on on their uh, you know uh, stationery. It said the wreckage UFO. They called it UAP, not UFO. The UFO wreckage is no longer in government hands. It's in private hands. It's at the, uh, uh, the fellow's name is Robert Bigelow, Bigelow Aerospace in Las Vegas, Nevada is where it's at. And here's what they've been working on. Now, I won't go into all the titles of some of these projects that they were working on and still are at Bigelow, but they appear to, to be testing or, or investigating time travel. It's uh, slowing down. The speed of light. One of the projects is trying to slow down the speed of light. Believe it or not, don't ask. Don't ask me how you do that. But these are these exotic uh, programs that they're they're doing with the uh, certainly the Roswell wreckage. Of uh, it, it looks to me like they're trying to uh, to discover the uh, the nexus of the time travel. Uh, you know, from my uh, understanding of what I read. So, so that's in a, where in the a, wreckage in a, in is. A Freedom of Information uh, request, he was told that the UFO crash debris or wreckage is no longer in government hands. Right there, that one document, I mean, we talked about the Ra Roger Ramey memo right. being the smoking gun. Isn't that? In fact, the smoking gun, the government has acknowledged they were at one time in possession of crashed or a, a, a crashed UFO. Well, the, the Ramey memo, the key word in the Ramey memo, because it, it was there's a lot of grain in it. So you just can't keep enlarging it because you enlarge the grain as well. But the key word in the Ramey memo, and I think Don will agree with me, is the word victims. Because mm -hmm. no balloon coming to the ground, you know, they go up, they expand, they explode, and they come down. There's going to be no victims to a balloon. Uh, Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> so this this FOIA no request, the government is and admitting the that they request. had, they had past tense, 
possession of the UFO, and now they don't. I mean, that, Correct. They, that to me... It's now in private hands because private companies, and Bigelow Aerospace was already in the business of uh, government contracts. So, uh, And Robert Bigelow himself uh, was a good friend of uh, Senator Harry Reid, who got this uh, ATIP program going. So, you know, that's, that's how it all worked, is they were good friends. And so of the $22 million under the ATIP program, most of it went to Bigelow Aerospace. So they were already in that business. So, uh, and, you know, uh, Las Vegas, uh, Bigelow is, is in Las Vegas, and uh, Area 51 is not far from there. So we think the wreckage was there at some point, but now it's in private hands at Bigelow Aerospace, and uh, it, it's, you know, it all falls together. Has Bigelow well, Tom, confirmed Richard, or denied he's in possession? What Richard is asking, that even with the response to the FOIA request regarding their one-time possession of the wreckage, that this could be construed as another smoking gun, correct? Oh, certainly. Right. Certainly. They're, they're, you know, they've been trying to walk back ever since this... Uh, the Luis Elizondo stuff, they've been trying to walk it back to like, oh, we always, uh, we always uh, experiment on uh, exotic metals, you know, that we want to use in our uh, fighter jets and our bombers and our rockets. And they tried to, like, combine it into all these other programs, but Anthony Bergaglia has it on record from the, the uh, uh, Defense Intelligence Agency that they had UFO wreckage, well, even though they call it UAP, they have UFO wreckage. It's now at Bigelow Aerospace. And that's all, that's, they have, he has that in writing. He has that in writing. So, sir. And I know we have to take a, we have to take we a did. break at the top of the hour, but when we come back, Richard, you should uh, ask Tom about uh, the response, especially within the UFO community. When Brigalia went public, with the fact that he did have a response regarding their one-time possession of exotic, right. as far as materials, from a UFO, UAP, and how he was treated just for going public with the fact that this is the response I received. All right, we'll do that on the other side. Thomas Carey, Donald Schmidt, stay with us. The 75th anniversary of Roswell, back with more in a moment. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740.
Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace. And the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Ryan White is the live stream producer. Carlos Kajina is the technical producer. Check out my YouTube and Rumble channel, Strange Planet. Don't forget to hit the, hit the red subscribe button. So we are uh, continuing to talk about the UFO incident at Roswell, July of 1947, days after something shiny crashed in the New Mexico desert. The Roswell Army Airfield issued a press release that read the military had recovered the remains of a flying disc. The story was quickly changed to the recovery of a weather balloon. And um, that story would change several more times over the years. Uh, We are commemorating the 75th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident, albeit three months early. Witness to Roswell, the 75th anniversary edition is now out. Co-authors Don Schmidt and Tom Carey are here. So, um... We were talking about uh, Anthony Bragalia. Is it Bragalia? Uh, Bragalia. 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 Yes. And uh, he issued this uh, FOIA request, and uh, you know, looking for the uh, possess who possessed the the Roswell UFO debris, and he was told uh, that the government no longer is in possession, and that it is now in the possession of Robert Bigelow of Bigelow Aerospace. So when Bragalia Release this information. How was he? How was he treated by the UFO community? Well, you know, Richard, there's a a lot of people in the UFO community, believe it or not, that don't like Roswell. You know, they have their own little specialties. Uh, you know, other phenomena, uh, crop circles, cattle mutilations, that sort of stuff. So uh, he was called. Uh, they said uh, they accused him of revealing government secrets. They said he uh, is guilty of treason. All sorts of stuff where you would think like, oh boy, at last we know where it's at. And this is not from uh, information from Uncle Harry. It came from the Department of uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency in, in Washington. So you would think it would be you know, like the uh, clouds are parting and the sun is bright, and it was anything but that. Uh, he received a lot of abuse, some of it out of out of jealousy from other uh, uh, researchers, but others uh, were just uh, they, they don't like the Roswell case, and the government tried to, uh, to walk it back, like oh oh, oh no, we we weren't talking about UFOs, we were talking about just. Uh, metallurgical research. Well, it was too late for that because Anthony already had it in writing of where it, where the wreckage is and what they're doing with it. So it was a mixed uh, bag, uh, Richard, of uh, response where I thought it would have been universal, uh, at least uh, non-governmental, uh, universal uh, applause for Tony. And, uh, you know, at last we know, but it was uh, it was mixed. Well, I mean, no, that's, Richard, that this is, story should have been bigger than the New York Times piece in December 2017, don't you think? Yes, yes. yes if uh, if oh, not ahead, only sorry. these people would uh, have any 
research backgrounds regarding you know the military slash government i mean how many people aren't even aware of the fact that the united states military slash government doesn't manufacture anything everything is contracted out into the public sector and lest we forget you know dwight president dwight eisenhower's you know dire warning about the military industrial complex taking over the government here in, in, in the united states and through the years Tom and I, we've interviewed first-hand witnesses. He had mentioned, like, uh, not only, you know, we had Wright Pat, but Patel Institute. We had Los Alamos. But we also had Boeing. We had Lockheed. We had Hughes Aircraft. We had Rand Corporation. We had the Bureau of Standards. All talking about testing this exotic material from Roswell in 1947. And so, is it any wonder that as they were waiting for a breakthrough. They were hoping that somebody would finally find the on button to, you know, this this new technology way beyond human comprehension. And that through the years, as, you know, they would get, you know, this report, well, we, we need another year. We need five more years. We're working on it. We're working on it. Unless we also forget that just within the last year, the late Senator Harry Reid also publicly made the statement, and I know there too, it was reeled back, it was retracted, but he made the statement that it was his information that Lockheed was in possession of some of this wreckage, some of this hardware. And so they keep waving this carrot. They dangle this carrot that, yes, we have wreckage, we have hardware. And so they play this, this shell game with us. And what Tom and I are saying is that they have acknowledged we have people such as Luis Elizondo who, you know, will make, you know, that actual uh, statement that, yes, they are in possession of the physical wreckage recovered in whatever manner, shape, or form they did, that we have, you know, pieces of a genuine flying saucer. So all we're trying to do is now determine where this, where it may be. And so we can't even make a suggestion, as Tom just described, without colleagues within the UFO community jumping on it and saying, well, you know, you're putting the cart before the horse. You're, you're making such a claim without having any evidence. Well, if we haven't already established that a crash took place in 47, then the next logical question becomes, where is it? And I'm sorry if we're performing due process in now trying to determine where it is. And we feel that the government has already acknowledged that they, too, are trying to find out where the remnants presently remain. Well, has anyone gone to Bigelow and asked? Uh, Robert Bigelow, I mean, is he still alive? I don't know if he's still alive. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. No, no. It, 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 publicly, they, they, they don't want to know. They, they don't want to know, and they certainly don't want us to know. But Harry Reid certainly knew because... Uh, uh, it was Bigelow who got to read interested in UFOs when Bigelow was doing all these contracted projects for the government already, uh, space-related. I think it's called Bigelow Aerospace uh, Systems or something like that. He was already in the space business, and he got Harry Reid interested, and it was Harry Reid who got the, 
the ATIP uh, project going. So, you know, uh, uh, as government senators, Congress people, uh, they don't most they don't want to get near this subject. They don't want to get near this subject. And uh, uh, Marco Rubio, a senator from Florida, uh, I thought uh, quite courageously. Uh, was the one, I believe, in the Senate who uh, tasked the uh, Defense Department, the Pentagon, with uh, putting a report together that he gave them 180 days. Uh, President Trump signed the, the uh, uh, law. It was part of, I believe, a COVID-type COVID uh, law. Uh, and uh, he gave them 180 days from December of 2000 and who uh, 19 to have a report which which they did so but most of your senators and congress people they they don't want to get near this subject uh, and that all goes back to the mid 1950s with the so-called contactee people who were coming out of the woodwork saying that they had just been whisked around mm -hmm. the solar system by our space brothers and that i mean that really damaged the whole phenomenon for decades and uh, so no I, I don't think any of the senators or Congress people are asking anything about this other than um, you know when the when the report came out and and what when about Bregalia uh, has he gone back to to Robert Bigelow and, and pressed him on this issue oh he tried to get to Bigelow yes he yes he did uh, he couldn't get past the uh, Praetorian guards. Uh, he tried to uh, contact Bigelow, and uh, he finally uh, reached the uh, former lawyer for Bigelow Aerospace. He's, re he's retired now, but he finally interviewed the lawyer because everybody was saying, oh, you want to talk to this guy? No, you want to talk to that guy? And he finally got to the lawyer of Bigelow, and... Uh, the uh, lawyer, uh, when he started asking penetrating questions about these projects, the lawyer hung up on him. Hmm. See, Richard, what we also have to consider is that uh, Bigelow's name has been bandied about for many years now. In fact, most probably aren't aware of the fact is that Bigelow was with us in New Mexico back in uh, around 1991. And that's where he first got his feet wet regarding this subject. I know he had had, had an experience m many years before, but this is where he went public. And wouldn't you know that everybody and their father's son were lining up with these pet projects that uh, they uh, you know presented their wish lists about Bigelow, you know, providing special grants and funding. And I, I joke, for example, that I knew Robert Bigelow when he was just a multimillionaire. And so many of our colleagues, the very same ones that now are, you know, casting, you know, this, this gloom and doom about us continuing, you know, working on Roswell, were the very ones that ruined our relationship with Robert Bigelow. So if, not that, if that not being the case, we probably would still have an open door. And we may have those answers that uh, we've been searching for. But uh, you notice that whether it's Christopher Mellon or Luis Elizondo or even the late Harry Reid, the one person who is strangely absent in all of this and has been since the, the 2017 New York Times story, 
is Robert Bigelow. That yeah, he's been awfully quiet. Wagon, I mean, he made that he made that famous appearance on 60 Minutes talking about UFOs. I'm not sure what year that was. Was, was that after 20 or before uh, December 2017? Do you remember that interview? Yes, absolutely. And he was right in the reporter's face telling her, you know, you have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, you, you, you don't have any knowledge of exactly what information they, that the government has regarding, you know, the situation. And that has been the last, Richard. And uh, I'd like to believe that there's something forthcoming, but we, as Tom would also note, that Bigelow Aerospace, how many people, they laid off everybody, correct, Tom, during COVID? Everybody. They laid off everybody when this uh, stuff started to arrive, and they started building new facilities. So it's not like it's closed down. They built new facilities, windowless. They don't have windows, and he laid off everybody, except the people working on the projects. Do we know... um I mean, we hear about these, you know these little tiny pieces and the memory metal and so forth. Is it possible that there are larger pieces of the craft that survived that we just we didn't hear about? Um, all well, we hear about are little tiny pieces. Most of them were little tiny pieces, Richard, like the uh, size of the palm of your hand. But uh, because it, it blew up and it didn't crash, it blew up in the air. We believe it was from a lightning strike. Uh, or an internal explosion. It's just, just speculation, but the, that's what we believe. But the the inner cabin survived. There was an inner cabin, according to witnesses who found it, uh, that survived the explosion and came to rest uh, 35 miles uh, east-southeast of the so-called debris field that Mac Brazel uh, discovered. So, yes, there there was a larger portion of the craft like I said, the inner cabin or an escape capsule of some sort that did survive. Instrument and panel? We, even, we, we were even fortunate enough to interview the paper boys in downtown Roswell on Main Street who worked for you know the two newspapers, the Roswell Daily Record and the Roswell Dispatch. And they would, you know, be, you know, peddling their papers on opposite sides of Main Street. And both of them now, as grown adults, describing to us how they witnessed the convoy, you know, arrive from north of town, and with the low boy, the flatbed truck, with the tarped, egg-shaped silhouette underneath this canvas covering, as it proceeded under heavy guard, you know, back to the base. And so... Right, right down Main Street. Right down Main Street. And... One of the things that tipped us off, one of the things that always pointed to something much closer to Roswell, the debris field is 65 miles northwest in another county, Lincoln. Roswell is in Chavez County. And the fact that why would the sheriff of Chavez County and his deputies and why would firemen from Roswell go to another county out of their jurisdiction? I mean, it doesn't happen. And yet, it kept pointing to something just north of town. It kept pointing to something being uh, separate from the debris field. And as Tom just mentioned, the impact site with the remains of the capsule, the cabin, and then the remains of the crew. Well, which brings me to um, little Joe Montoya, the lieutenant governor 
of New Mexico. Now, he died in the late 1970s, I think. So um, did you ever interview – well, let's tell the story. We've, we've, tell, we've told it before. You've told it before on the program, but for those who are new to the show, tell us a little bit about little Joe Montoya, uh, then lieutenant governor of New Mexico, and what he saw at the, uh, the Army field. Yes, uh, we, we did not interview little Joe Montoya directly. We got the story from uh, one of his staffers uh, that, that worked for him uh, in the Senate. Uh, he be, he, in 1947, he was a lieutenant governor of uh, New Mexico. And at the time of the crash, uh, he was uh, in, in Roswell. And uh, he was down uh, down there for some uh, occasion when the bodies and the wreckage started coming in. He was already on the base, or it was either he was already on the base or, or he was ordered to go to the base. I'm, I don't recall which it was, but he found himself on the base, and uh, he was inter- interviewing some of his loyal uh, Montoyistas, uh, young supporters of little Joe Mon- Montoya. And uh, so he headed over to the base hangar, one of one of the hangars there, hangar uh, P3 back in uh, 1947, building 84. It's still there today, although most of the other stuff is gone. But uh, he went over to the hangar to uh, interview some of his, uh, he was told there were some loyal Montoyistas over there. So he went over there and he ran right into the recovery operation. And uh, so he... He goes into the hangar, and he sees the wreckage, but what really set him off was viewing the little bodies. He saw the little bodies, and he lost it. So he uh, he goes to the phone. He he, all, he calls one of his uh, uh, Montoyistas and Roswell. Get over here quick. Get over here quick. Get me the hell out of here. Get me out of here. And so... Uh, Meet me at the big, big uh, water tower, which is still there. So uh, he calls uh, the Monto- the Anaya brothers, Reuben and Pete uh, Anaya, and so they come over to pick him up. And out bolts Montoya from the hangar, runs to the car, jumps in the back seat. Let's get the hell out of here. And so. According to the Anaya brothers, uh, on the drive out of the base to uh, Pete Anaya's house, he's rocking back and forth in the in the backseat, rocking back and forth. Oh my God! Oh my God! They weren't human. They weren't human. They weren't human. So they get to Pete Anaya's house, and uh, he says, "Oh, I need a drink. I need a drink." So, <clears throat> so they, <coughs> excuse me, they bring in a little little. Uh, the shot glass of uh, Jim Beam, and gulp, gulp, right down. Oh, I, I need some more. That's not enough. So he he gulps down the bottle of Jim Beam in three gulps. The the uh, Reuben and I had described it as bam, 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 and the bottle was gone. <laughs> and so he goes over. I got to lay down. So he laid down on the couch, went to sleep. But it was not a uh, restful sleep. He just kept. Uh, you know, nervously uh, twitching and moving around. He just couldn't sleep right. And uh, so finally he, uh, he he got to sleep and woke up later and uh, he says, okay, take me to my uh, hotel. He was staying at the Nixon Hotel. That's uh, spelled N-I-C-K-S-I-N, not N-I-X-O-N. 
at the Nixon Hotel in Roswell. And uh, so we got the story from, uh, 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 what is it, Pete Anaya's son, John, John Anaya, who was a staffer. And I said, did you, did you, did uh, uh, Montoya tell you the story mm -hmm. about at Roswell? He said, yes, he did tell me. I said, well, what do you think? He said, well, yeah, I believed him. I believed him. But uh, Anaya told me, he said, if you ever tell that story to anybody, I will deny it. So that's how we got the story. I believe it. I think Don believes it. And uh, it was quite a reaction uh, to a U.S. Uh, he was lieutenant governor. I think he became senator in 1964, uh, replacing Dennis Chavez, the former uh, senator. And I don't recall when he passed away. But, I think it was 1978. I was looking, um, and and I'm guessing never spoke of it again. Correct. Not publicly. Not publicly. All right. Well, Got to take like another time out, gentlemen. Yeah. Stay with us. Yeah, back we, with more of our conversation. The 75th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident. We'll also take questions from the live chat. Get them ready, and uh, Ryan will, uh, my live stream producer, will curate those, and we'll get them on the air. Stay with us. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Donald R. Schmidt and Thomas J. Carey, co-authors of Witness to Roswell, the 75th anniversary edition. How do we get a copy? Well, the book is available certainly on, on Amazon as well as uh, Barnes & Noble, all fine bookstores uh, throughout the country. All right. Um, so we were talking about little Joe Montoya, and I'd asked uh, – later he became senator. He saw the bodies. He never spoke of it again. You said at least publicly. Uh, did, did, he, did he speak of it again privately, and has that information come forward? We, we we only know the story from uh, the Anaya uh, brothers and uh, their son John. Uh, we never spoke to uh, uh, to uh, little Joe, uh, and I I am unaware. I don't know if Don is or not. I'm unaware that he ever spoke again publicly about it. No, but because uh, we had entered the investigation a, a good decade after he had passed away. As Tom mentioned, we interviewed the uh, Anayas. We interviewed um, Mary Anaya, uh, Pete's uh, uh, wife, and she even described the military coming to their home. And there was a ar argument that ensued out in the front yard, and uh, that Mary was then told by her husband that they were warned that if they ever talked about this, that uh, they would be killed over the situation. And then uh, later, we even tracked down, we, we talked, we sat and met with 
uh, Montoya's private pilot, who went by the name Red Warley. And we spent a morning with him at a uh, Denny's restaurant. And uh, he wouldn't acknowledge even that much. But we tripped him up on a number of things, and we, we came away clearly convinced that he was uh, not only the pilot, but that he fully was aware of the story. The U.S. Army threatened the lieutenant governor of the state of New Mexico that he'd be killed if he talked about it? Well, no, this would have been the, um, the Anayas. Right. That yeah, if they repeated anything talk. that they would have heard from the lieutenant yeah, governor. I- Sheriff, Sheriff Wilcox of Chavez County, based in Roswell, he was fluent in Spanish, so they used him to issue the death threats to the Hispanic community in and around Roswell. And uh, the Anayas, uh, we, we learned from Pete and uh, Mary and uh, Reuben that uh, the sheriff pulls up in front of their house, so they figure, oh, what, what does Sheriff Wilcox want? He's probably... You know, what's the, you know, a nice visit? Well, Sheriff Wilcox came to their house to issue the death warning that if they talked about this, they would not only be killed, but also their children and uh, other family members would be killed if they spoke publicly about what they knew about the little Joe. My word. Uh, the, the pilots that flew the wreckage to Fort Worth and to Wright Pad. Uh, did they also fly the bodies? Well, there were numerous flights. In fact, uh, the, the first flight would have been the Pappy Henderson we flight. We, uh, flight we believe um, he was a member of the Green Hornets. O. W. Henderson, one of the best pilots in the U.S. military at that time, and he flew a C-54 cargo plane that went directly to Wright Field. And in his case, when he confessed to his uh, wife, Saffel, as well as his daughter, that he flew not only wreckage, but uh, a number of the bodies, that he even witnessed the bodies at the very hangar Tom had mentioned earlier, P3, Building 84. And then you had the, the subsequent, uh, the uh, Marcel flight, originally on its way to Wright Field, and then with the stop at Fort Worth for the balloon press conference, that was uh, on a B-29 called Dave's Dream. And then there was a flight that came in from Washington that uh, a counterintelligence master sergeant non-commissioned officer, Lewis Rickett, described to us. And uh, he handled a box of uh, debris up into the cockpit, recognized the pilot, who would later he would later talk to thereafter. We recount that story in the book. And then we have uh, another flight that went out on uh, Wednesday, July 9th, involved the uh, 393rd Bomb Squadron. We tracked down and talked to as many of that crew who were still alive, and they all confirmed the flight of a large wooden crate that was hidden in bomb pit number one. Uh, that was a B-29 called Straight Flush, and uh, they flew directly to uh, Fort Worth and we're convinced that was the second load of bodies that went off from Roswell. Do we have uh, any sort of chain of of custody of the bodies after that? The 
the bodies, the one we lose track of is the live one. The, the dead ones, we believe there were four dead and one one alive of the crew. The uh, like Don, like Don said, the first flight was the Pappy Henderson flight of uh, July the eighth that went directly to uh, right field. And the second one uh, was a day later. This was the one with the big crate, July 9, uh, uh, 1947. That was supposed to uh, go to right field directly, but it went to Fort Worth first. And uh, what's interesting about that flight, it was a 55-minute flight from uh, Roswell Field to uh, uh, Fort Worth in uh, Fort Worth, Texas was that when the flight was landing in Fort Worth, one of the uh, officers on the, the Street Plus recognized a mortician friend of his waiting in on the tarmac for the flight, along with the, uh, the officers on the base. He recognized a, a mortician. Now, what would a mortician be doing waiting for a flight from Roswell with a big box in it with, uh, guess what? So... Uh, those were the body flights, uh, and, and Don has already uh, 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 alluded to those. And we have a witness on the tarmac, or I'm sorry, on uh, in uh, on right field when that flight arrived. And he said that now this would be the Pappy Henderson flight. He says the C-54, and out from the cargo uh, came three stretchers. And they were moving really quickly towards the medical building. These three stretchers and this one fellow who was uh, there at right field for a physical, to whether he was going to remain on flight status, he, he actually failed his test. But he said he saw these three stretchers come out of the C-54 and uh, quickly went into the medical facility. And all he remembers, he didn't know any details, but he said they were very short and frail but they had large egg-shaped heads, so that's what he remembered from that. So, uh, little interesting stories like that. Now, Rich, you had mentioned yeah. you had asked about the like the chain of custody. One of the things that um, you know suggested the extraordinary situation was at the weather balloon press conference in General Ramey's office at Fort Worth. He canceled in front of the press, the resumption of that flight, which was to then continue uh, to its original destination at Wright Field, that the material was going to be tested and analyzed. Well, Ramey canceled that. Well, if you go to all the press accounts at that time, that was incorrect. And specifically, there was an FBI telex that went out at 6.17 that very evening from the Dallas FBI Bureau office which refuted that. It stated that based on their telephonic, their telephone conversations with Wright Field, it was not a weather balloon, it was something else, and it was going on to Wright Field for testing and analysis. And then there were even press accounts that reporters got uh, spokespeople from the Pentagon that even stated that the material was at Wright Field for testing and analysis. So that's a matter of historic fact, that all the press accounts beyond Ramey's cancellation of such testing, it did actually take place. 
All right, we have to take another time out here. When we come back, we'll get, uh, we've got lots of great questions from our live chat for Don Schmidt, Tom Carey, the 75th anniversary of Roswell. Stay with us, more to come. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, let's go to the YouTube live chat. Uh, Mark Hemphill asks, either uh, Don or Tom, could UFOs be held at Fort Knox? Fort Knox, did he say? (laughs) Well, that's where they're supposed to keep the gold, but some suggest there's no gold there, so they might have rooms for some (laughs) UFOs. I don't know. Uh, I'll, I'll let Don take that one. Oh, thank you. No, no, you are right. You are correct, Richard. We we hear more than ever that uh, whatever gold was uh, being stored and preserved there has long been removed, and so I'm sure it would provide ample space for for something else. You know, on a such uh, you know secured facility, such a secured facility, but. Uh, We've occasionally had people suggest that, but we've never had any testimony or any reason to believe that. It's only been suggested. And I think uh, because, uh, obviously, such a uh, uh, facility as Fort Knox would be considered one of the most secure, you know, areas, you know, of, of the world, for that matter. And uh, But again, well, I, no information I, I, to that regard. I've never heard that one until Richard just asked. I never heard that one. <laughs> I've come across it a number of times, but like I said, okay. that was as far as it went because we've never had any witnesses, even second or third, uh, you know, make that suggestion. All right. Um, Thinker is asking about writing on the craft. Uh, something uh, he's he's referring it to to it as quote end quote angel writing. Any markings on the craft? The uh, wreckage. We we know the. Jesse Marcel Jr. spoke of the uh, symbols on these uh, things he called little I-beams. They had uh, little pastel uh, shapes of, you know, unintelligent, undecipherable markings on these I-beams. It was also reported that there were were some some uh, symbols on the, some of the wreckage. It, it, uh, uh, there's not a whole lot on that. I believe at some point uh, our investigation tried to get a uh, linguist to try to decipher some of the writing, but it was und- undecipherable. But uh, uh, I'm not sure about that. But I think Don Don was involved in that. All right. Uh, JT asks, supposedly the military ordered... Oh, now we're getting to the Glenn Dennis um, uh, story here, the uh, mortician at the Ballard Funeral Home. Uh, The military ordered a mortician to construct small coffins. Well, they ordered him... They asked him to to order some uh, for the bodies. Why would they even need coffins, per se, if they weren't going to have a burial for them? Good question. So the Glenn Dennis testimony, he got a call from the Army Airfield asking him for... uh, you know, tiny, childlike coffins. Uh, good question. Why would they need coffins if they weren't going to bury them? Did he deliver those coffins? Well, the one feature of the Glenn Dennis testimony that we do accept, that we do uh, agree on, because we have multiple witnesses 
that uh, also heard within days that Glenn had received phone calls from the base hospital, that someone was inquiring as to not only preservation techniques for remains, for bodies that had been exposed to the elements for a number of days, but then specifically as to, as you mentioned, Richard, the availability of child-sized caskets. And um, the information at the time was that they did not have any in stock, but uh, we had also the good fortune of receiving information secondhand, but from the son of supposedly the contract driver who typically would make the drive, the long drive up to Amarillo, Texas, from Roswell, and pick up, you know, just uh, caskets in general. And that uh, the son recalled how they were child-sized, that they made the long drive, they returned back to Roswell, and this, the, the town, the city, had been pretty much cordoned off, that they had to circle from the east to the west side of town before his father was able to uh, drop him off at home and wouldn't return to the next morning. And that uh, the caskets were taken out to uh, the base hospital, and uh, they did not involve children. So they kind of put two and two together that maybe it had something to do with the rumors of that crash flying saucer north of town. So uh, uh, Tom was more involved as far as with the nurse at the Ballard Funeral Home, who uh, actually would have uh, responded and then filled that order for these child-sized caskets. So there was a nurse, but it wasn't someone who was out at the base at that time. It was someone who was actually on contract with the Ballard Funeral Home. I'll let Tom take that. All right. Yes, this gets back. This is a part of the Glenn Dennis uh, story that we don't, believe Glenn was actually involved in, that he picked it up from somebody else, but we, we do believe his uh, uh, story about receiving the phone calls about the caskets from about a half a dozen people who remember him talking about it. And he added this other part that uh, he had gone out uh, to the base uh, delivering a injured uh, airman who was injured in an automobile or accident, and uh, the the Ballard Funeral Home also had the contract, the uh, ambulance contract, uh, and uh, I don't know about you, I, I, I don't think I like to be taken to the hospital in a hearse. It's, it's one-stop uh, shopping. Uh, that's not a good exactly. look, you know. <laughs> so, while, while Glenn was at the hospital, so he said, uh, he uh, ran into his nurse friend there. He did not recognize a lot of the people and doctors there and his nurse friend said, Glenn, you better get out of here. Uh, you're going to get into trouble. And he didn't, you know, what, what what's going on? So uh, he winds up getting escorted out by a red-haired captain and telling him, uh, go home and you'd never come back here. You're not supposed to be here, blah, 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 blah. So uh, it turns out that uh, it's, I mean, we searched for Glenn's nurse because he gave us a uh, name, uh, Naomi Mar or Maria Naomi Self. I might I might have that backwards, uh, but uh, Maria Naomi Self or Naomi Maria Self, one of those two. And we spent two years looking for her. There never was such a person uh, in the military, 
and uh, she allegedly had crashed over in England, so we couldn't interview her. So we said we went back to Glenn and said, "Glenn, there's no, there's no such a person." He said, "Well, I gave you a, a phony name. Oh, that's just great. I mean, we spent two years of our own time and money looking for her, and it was phony." So right away, in a court of law, he would be impeached. He would be impeached and as a witness. So right. I've got to, sorry, uh, Tom. I got to take another time out. This was a short segment. We'll come back and we'll pick up on the Glenn Dennis story and that nurse, and uh, also more questions from our live chat. Tom Carey, Don Schmidt, 75th anniversary of Roswell. Back with more in a moment. Where there's smoke, there's the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. And a few minutes remain with Tom Carey, Don Schmitz, 75th anniversary edition of Witness to Roswell. Uh, back to the live chat questions. You Betcha asks, why has human spacecraft technology been largely stagnant since the 1950s, all the while we've had the Roswell craft for 75 years? Excellent question. That, Don, it, is, it is. But uh, as we had alluded to, in the, in the uh, first hour, that uh, I think it, it's it's quite uh, a, a case of human arrogance. The idea it's like Will Smith in the movie Independence Day that he's able to jump into the cockpit of that un, that extraterrestrial craft and he's able to fly it like he's done it a hundred times before. And uh, Tom and I would suggest that one of the reasons for the cover up is, is the fact that. As I said earlier, they still can't find the on button. They still cannot, you know, bridge that, you know, that technology. And as a result, what have we gleaned? What have we been able to reverse engineer? And the fact that we're still launching rockets and flying jet, you know, engine aircraft would suggest that um, it's, it's, it's still well beyond our comprehension. And so we shouldn't expect anything you know, in the near future, and we'd like to believe there have been some near breakthroughs here and there. But, uh, and it's been suggested even fiber optics may be one of them. But uh, that's as close as, as they've come to, uh, you know, actually determining the, the, uh, the nature of the, uh, the uh, technology. All right, uh, back to the bodies now. Uh, YY asks, were any attempts made to preserve the alien bodies? Well, Glenn Dennis talked about that a little bit, if he's to be believed on this count, about dipping them, I think, in formaldehyde or something. Yes, uh, some of the calls, you got at least two calls on how to preserve uh, tissue, uh, organic tissue that had been out in the desert for several days. The best way to preserve it. And uh, so that's the, you know, I mean, they were, they were dead, and uh, they were out. Uh, according to our calculations, they were out on the desert floor from uh, the evening of July the 2nd until the first discovery, which was uh, of the bodies, which was on uh, July the 7th, I believe when they were discovered north of town, and then they were discovered also at another site uh, at the same time. So they were out on the desert floor about five days, and it's hot hot and sunny out there in uh, in, in the month of July down there in Roswell. So, uh, yes, uh, they, they would be beyond preservation, I believe, the dead ones. And the ones that... Uh, 
were with the the uh, inner cabin at least had a you know the the one that was alive at least had a place to uh, protect them itself from the the elements uh, when it uh, with the uh, craft that was still intact so uh, that's all we know about the preservation uh, in uh, at Wright Field and later on they originally uh, put kept them on ice there was they had an ice house there they were kept on ice but at some point they uh, uh, obtained uh, cryogenic suspension capsules and they were we have witness testimony that uh, they were kept in these uh, cryogenic uh, capsules uh, in uh, suspension to, to preserve them as they were uh, Chuck1776 asks, oh, this is a classic story about uh, Jackie Gleason, I, I believe was living in Florida at the time, and uh, uh, his golfing buddy, President Nixon, uh, drove Gleason to a base and showed Jackie Gleason a, um, well, ja Chuck's asking about a UFO, but I believe Jackie Gleason uh, claimed that he saw alien bodies. Tom, why don't you? You wrote that section in the uh, Touch by Rouse book, so. Did, did I? Go ahead. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. <laughs> you did. <laughs> he, uh, he was a. Uh, uh, Jackie Gleason was living in. He changed his base of operations from New York City to uh, Miami, Florida. And he was a big golfer. He loved to golf. And so did President Nixon who had a uh, vacation place in uh, Key Biscayne, Florida. So it was only a matter of time until the two met up on the golf course. Jackie Gleason had a passion for the uh, subject of UFOs at the time, and no doubt when they were on the golf course, uh, some at some point he told Nixon about his uh, interest in UFOs. And uh, so one night, I forget what year this was, 1972-73, uh, in that range. Uh, so at midnight one night, uh, there's a knock on Gleason's door, and it's the president. This is according to his uh, wife at the time, Beverly McKittrick, who was also a golfer. And uh, we get the story from her, because uh, Jackie never spoke publicly about it. And uh, so Nixon's at the door. He says, oh, come on, Jackie, I want to show you something. So out they go. And uh, according to the story, Nixon had ditched his uh, security guard, and he was driving the car. There he had the President of the United States driving the car to Homestead Air Force Base in uh, uh, Florida. In they go into a secure facility down the hallway, Jackie, Jackie sees some wreckage. He says, uh, what is that stuff? And so Nixon said, no, follow me. So in they go to a room, and there's, uh, I don't know how many aliens, one or two, I don't know. But according to the story, there were several aliens, uh, little guys with big heads on gurneys that Nixon had shown to him. And that's the essence of the story. And uh, so according to his wife, when Jackie got back home, he was very upset, very or shook up, really shook up, and uh, it, it, he had difficulty getting the story out, but he got it out, and uh, we learned about it from his wife. But that's that's basically the essence of the story. And obviously, the ordeal had inspired Gleason to have quite a UFO book collection when he passed. There were over 700 books 
that were donated to the University of Florida at Miami. And, and Gleason's home was designed, was shaped like a flying saucer. <laughs> that he intentionally, you know, had it uh, had his house uh, constructed to uh, look like uh, a landed UFO. Do you believe that story? Is that possible that the president would have that kind of access? That's, well, that's let's keep good. in mind that back in at the time of Roswell, Dwight Eisenhower, five-star general, as it turns out one of just a handful, was the chief of staff of the Army. And Roswell was an Army incident. There was no Air Force in July of 1947. So Eisenhower would have been right at the very top of people in the know. Well, who was Eisenhower's vice president for mm-hmm. eight years? Richard Nixon. So there's good reason to believe that Nixon would have also known directly through his boss. So Excellent point. Then story of Gleason and Nixon then all the more conceivable. We can't prove it, but it, it, it's it's certainly a, a, a very strong possibility. Uh, I think we have time for one more quick one. Craig asks Tom and Don, what are your opinions on ancient alien crash sites and Antarctica crash sites? Well, that's a big question for two minutes. Why don't we talk about Antarctica? You know, there's uh, rumors about this enormous craft there that's emerging from the melting ice down in Antarctica. Uh, any thoughts? Well, I've never heard of that one, so I'll, I'll let Don uh, take Thank care you. of that. Thank uh, you. I have, but again, to me, it's reminiscent of every few years they relocate or they locate Noah's Ark. <laughs> and to date, uh, I don't know that anyone has ever come up with anything conclusive. So let's, we'll, we'll wait and see. But something that big, they shouldn't be able to hide. Um, we know that the Nazis, that the Germans were working, I mean, they had an Arctic base. We know that the Soviets, you know, have had bases within Antarctica and through that region. So let's just say that uh, we're no strangers to such uh, locations. It's a question of then who is the uh, originator of uh, such an object. We know, for example, that they found a, a B-29 submerged with, uh, as far as up in the Arctic Circle and they managed to bring it to the surface. They managed to put new engines on and everything. Terrible story because there was a fire in the radio equipment, and they spent over a year salvaging, you know, that. So we know that there are aircraft of our creation at both uh, locations. So we'll wait and see. All right. Gentlemen, congratulations on the uh, 75th anniversary edition of Witness to Roswell, available at Amazon and fine bookstores everywhere. And uh, always appreciate your uh, your time and, and uh, enjoy speaking with you once again. Thank you, guys. Our pleasure. Thank Richard. you, Richard, for having us. And we'll do it again, I'm sure. Absolutely. Don Schmidt, Tom Carey, Witness to Roswell, the 75th anniversary edition. All right. That's it for me. My thanks to Ryan. And my thanks to Carlo. I'll be back next week with a brand new show on shared death experiences with one of the pioneers in the field. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden. 
that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.